following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn in them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2, our reading is going to be from the entire chapter. We're not going to focus on the entire chapter, but I want to select a passage from this chapter, and so we'll try to put it in its context. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with his with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and they departed for Egypt. And they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, Lamentation, Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted 
because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and he came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to consider this passage that presents to us the birth of Christ. And as we do so during this time of year, when we remember the incarnation, we pray that our familiarity with this passage of scripture and with this event would not breed contempt, that it would not give way to indifference, that we would come to this text as if for the first time, with our ears ready to hear and our hearts ready to receive what you would have to teach us. May we see the gospel in all of its glory for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We normally associate Christmas with positive feelings like happiness and hope. Most of our cards say things like Merry Christmas. Most of our Hymns call for joy to the world or beckon the faithful to come to be joyful and triumphant. When we think of the story of Jesus' birth, we envision this beautiful, tranquil scene in which shepherds and magi are gathered around a manger celebrating the birth of Jesus the Messiah. But that is not the whole picture. Matthew, the gospel writer, reminds us that Jesus' birth was also associated with feelings of sorrow and despair. And here in the second chapter of his gospel, Matthew recounts a tragic event following the birth of Christ, which history knows as the slaughter of the innocents. According to verse 7, King Herod learned from the wise men when the star first appeared. And later he calculates the time elapsed from the appearing of the star, and he sends his soldiers in order to slaughter every male child two years and under. Now Matthew's portrait of Herod corresponds very well with the portrait we get from secular history. Historians tell us that Herod was a very capable and yet cruel ruler. He was very suspicious that someone was going to try and usurp his throne. 
We're told that he had three of his sons and one of his wives murdered for treason. This is why the Roman emperor is reported to have said of Herod, better to be his pig than to be his son. So it shouldn't surprise us to see Herod responding this way to the news that the king of the Jews had been born. Bethlehem's population would have been around a thousand at this time in history, which statistically means that there would have been at least 20 to 30 infants and toddlers brutally slain. I mean, can you imagine waking up in the morning reading in the Bethlehem Times that 20 or 30 infants, toddlers, had been murdered in cold blood? As much as we'd like to have a Christmas story that's all warm and cozy, Matthew won't let it happen. There is, as he would put it, another side to the story. While Christmas brought great joy and celebration for some, it also brought great sorrow and suffering for others. And Matthew wants us to see that. But why does Matthew want us to see that? Why does he include this sad story in his gospel account? None of the other gospel writers include the slaughter of the innocents. What is his rationale? How does this sad story contribute to the gospel message? Well, I think we can, from this account, infer at least four reasons why Matthew would have included this story. We're not going to focus on all four, but let me mention them briefly. First of all, what Matthew is aiming to do in this part of his gospel is to explain how Jesus ends up in Nazareth. The prophets had said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. We see that in the earlier part of Matthew's gospel where Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is cited. However, Jesus spent most of his child growing up in a backwater town called Nazareth. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know that many people in Jesus' day stumbled over the idea that the Messiah could be from Nazareth. You remember when Nathanael was invited to come meet Jesus by Philip And he says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so what Matthew is doing here in his gospel is he's connecting the dots from Bethlehem, where Jesus was actually born, to Egypt, and then back up to Nazareth. And in doing so, Matthew's providing an apologetic, a defense for the obscure origins of the Messiah. But in the second place, Matthew's reminding his readers that from the beginning, there was much hatred and hostility aimed at the Lord Jesus. We need to be careful that those little nativity scenes don't fool us. Because Matthew gives us the rest of the story. Not everybody loves this little child. And by the way, that's still true today. A lot of folks don't mind it as long as you keep him in the manger. 
but they will not have him as king to rule over him. And if push comes to shove, many people today would do just what Herod tried to do. They would have him put to death. And so not everyone loves Jesus. Matthew wants his readers to see that. But then thirdly, Matthew is underscoring God's protective providence. It's very likely that this story of the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem would have reminded Matthew's readers of that that fateful event when Pharaoh tried to exterminate the firstborn of Israel. You remember when he tried to have those male children slain. And yet... As the story goes, there was one of those children which God had destined to be Israel's deliverer. And so as we read on in the book of Exodus, we see that God providentially protects this little child, Moses. And in the same way, here in Matthew chapter 2, God is providentially protecting he who would be the deliverer of his people. The kings of the earth and the rulers may gather together against the Lord and his anointed, but they will not prevail. God is determined to set the Christ upon the throne of David, and so it shall be. So we see God's providential protection. Out of Egypt I have called my son. But that brings me to the fourth reason. And this is the one I want to focus on this morning, or this evening, I should say. Why does Matthew include this event, this tragic, this dark event in his Christmas presentation? Well, you may recall that Isaiah the prophet described the Messiah as, and I quote, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And if we read on through Matthew's gospel, we're going to see that Jesus' earthly life was marked by tremendous pain and suffering and disappointment and affliction. In other words, human sorrow is, as it were, bound up in the very story of Jesus and the gospel. But Matthew's going to take it even a step further. Not only does the pain and grief suffered by the mothers of Bethlehem anticipate the sorrow that Jesus will endure, their pain and grief, says Matthew, happened to fulfill Old Testament scripture. And if you look at verse 17 and 18 again, you'll see that Matthew's going to cite Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Then was fulfilled... What was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. You ever wondered, what is that about? Well, Ramah was a city located on the border between Ephraim and Benjamin, which would have been about five miles north of Judah and about ten miles north of Bethlehem. This is important because Ephraim was part of the northern kingdom. Benjamin was part of the southern kingdom. 
of Israel. And according to Jeremiah 40, verse 1, the Babylonians were using the city of Ramah as a staging location for the exile. They would bring the people to Ramah, and then they would begin to ship them out or banish them from the land of Israel. But why would the prophet Jeremiah describe the exile as Rachel weeping for her children? Because after all, by Jeremiah's day, Rachel has been dead for a thousand years. Well, obviously, he's using this as a metaphor. Rachel was one of Jacob's wives. She had two sons. Her first son was Joseph, to whom was born Ephraim, and her second son was Benjamin. And so Jeremiah uses Rachel and her children to personify the nation of Israel. Ephraim represents the north. Benjamin represents the south. From the grave, the mother of the nation is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. You and I have to try to step out of our 21st century American context and transport ourselves back to that occasion when families were being ripped apart. Husbands and wives were being separated. Parents from their children. Siblings from one another. If you can just kind of think back a few weeks ago to October the 7th in Israel you'll have an idea of the kind of profound sorrow, grief, and despair that these people were undergoing. And as Matthew reflects upon the sorrow experienced by the mothers at Ramah and that sorrow experienced by the mothers at Bethlehem, he sees a clear correspondence. Now to clarify, he's not using the tragedy at Ramah like many preachers might use the tragedy at Bethlehem today. Many people will use the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew chapter 2 to preach against the evils of abortion. Kind of a springboard text or a text to illustrate. You know, just as Herod was slaughtering these poor little baby boys, so today many people are slaughtering baby children. Well, I don't think that's what Matthew's doing here. He's not just using the Old Testament as a book of illustrations for a sermon, but rather he sees a deeper correspondence. Somehow the grief at Ramah and the grief at Bethlehem are important themes that make up the Bible's organic storyline. Matthew would say that suffering and sorrow are woven into the very fabric of redemptive history. And each instance of suffering among God's people shares a relationship to the others. Which brings me to a word of application for us today. I think there's something comforting in knowing that we're not alone in our suffering, and in our sorrow. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get the Elijah syndrome. Lord, I alone am left. I'm the only one undergoing these sorts of trials, these temptations, this pain, this anguish. 
And the Lord will say to me what he said to Elijah. You're not alone. There are 7,000 knees that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You have brothers and sisters in the family of God who are undergoing or who have undergone or who will undergo the same sorts of trials and afflictions that you're experiencing. And there's something comforting about that, isn't there? I mean, even the people outside the church recognize the value of what we might call commiseration. You realize that one of the most popular genres of music are sad songs. I can remember as a young man, I had suffered a broken relationship, and I grabbed one of my dad's Roy Orbison cassettes, you know, and heard him sing about a broken heart. Mama, your baby boy just had his heart broken in two. And strange as it sounds, listening to someone sing about the very same blues that you're experiencing can be a tremendous comfort. But this happens at an even deeper level among the people of God. And this is why lament is one of the dominant themes of the Psalms. King David and the other inspired psalm writers experienced many trials and pain in their own lives, and they used their God-given gifts in order to pin laments so that they might commiserate with the people of God. And we see this even in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Peter, for example, he didn't write any hymns that we know of, but he did write two inspired epistles. And in those epistles, Peter reminds believers that they're not alone. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He goes on to say, Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so what David does in the Psalms, what Peter does in his epistles, Matthew is doing right here. You see, ultimately, he wants his readers to join the Magi and the shepherds in Christmas celebration. But he's not insensitive to the fact that his readers live in a sin-cursed world. And so alongside that Christmas celebration, he juxtaposes some Christmas commiseration from the grief of God's people at Ramah. In essence, Matthew's telling the grieving mothers at Bethlehem, you're not alone. He would say to them, your tears belong to a trail of tears that reach all the way back in redemptive history to the very fall of mankind. Now, I'm almost certain that there's somebody here this evening who's undergoing some difficult providence, some painful experience, some hardship. Christmas is supposed to be a happy occasion, but maybe you're dealing with unemployment, a broken relationship, chronic illness, wayward child, or maybe just a besetting sin. 
Your child of God, do not look at your trials and sorrows as a strange thing. In some ways, maybe your pain and suffering are unique to you. But in other ways, in very basic fundamental ways, others have gone through the same deep waters that you have. Others have walked through the fire before you. And so let the sad songs of Scripture encourage and comfort you. But now maybe some of you are saying, well, yeah, I do find some comfort in knowing that I'm not alone. I'm encouraged to know that my brothers and sisters in Christ throughout redemptive history have faced similar trials and can sympathize with me. But if I only knew that God could understand, if I only knew that God sympathized with me in my pain, You know, the nation of Israel wondered that. When they were suffering hardship in Egypt, in slavery, they cried to the Lord. And God, through Moses, assured them. He said to Moses, tell them, surely I have seen their affliction. I have heard their cries. And centuries later, the prophet Isaiah comments on that statement. And he says this, in all of their affliction, God was afflicted. And in his love and pity, he redeemed them. Now, obviously, he's not claiming that God was literally undergoing the same sort of trial or pain that they were enduring. But what he's claiming is something like this. God's knowledge is so vast that he understands our suffering and pain better than we can ever do. And God's love is so profound that he fully sympathizes with our pain and he feels compassion for us in our affliction. And 800 years later, the Apostle Peter would echo that theme. He would write to Christians suffering the very worst of circumstances, and he would say to them, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he might exalt you. And as you're doing that, cast all of your cares upon him, because, listen to this, He cares about you. It's as if Peter was saying, listen, God is more concerned about you than you could ever be concerned about yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but it brings great encouragement to my heart to know that I'm not alone in my suffering. I have a great cloud of witnesses who've walked through the dark valley of the shadow of death before I have. Like the mothers in Bethlehem, our afflictions as the people of God are just another stanza in that sad song of redemptive history. Moreover, we have a God who sees our affliction, who hears our cries, and who sympathizes with our sorrows. 
But it gets even better. We haven't even got to Matthew's real point. Not only does God feel compassion for his people, but God's compassion moves him to rescue them from their troubles, and that brings us to the most important point of his narrative. Note with me that the correspondence between Ramah's tears and Bethlehem's tears goes much deeper than the communion of suffering saints. As you know, the hope of redemption was bound up in the promise of a male offspring who would descend from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, and from the line of David. And when the young men of Israel, especially the descendants of David, were lined up at Ramah to be exiled away from the land of promise, all hope of redemption seemed lost. And this, by the way, is why Jeremiah uses Rachel as a personification of Israel. If you remember from the Genesis narrative, Rachel died as she was giving birth to her second child, and Moses tells her, and I quote, as her soul was departing, she called the child's name Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. And that word in Hebrew refers to a very deep, profound sorrow as those who mourn for the dead. And that's why Jeremiah goes on to say of her sorrow, she refused to be comforted. It was so profound that it eclipsed any ray of hope. What a picture for the tears at Ramah and for the tears at Bethlehem because there's no human sorrow more profound than a mother holding a lifeless child in her arms. And those mothers at Bethlehem would remember their little boys just as Rachel remembered hers. Benoni, son of my sorrow. And yet not all is hopeless. Though weeping may endure for the night, Matthew's going to tell us here that joy is coming in the morning. When he cites Jeremiah 31.15 in reference to the tears at Ramah, Matthew expects his readers to understand that particular text in reference to the larger context of Jeremiah's prophecy. And so with that in view, let me have you take your copy of Scripture, turn back to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, But I want you to see enough here to see that the primary theme of Jeremiah 31 is not sorrow, but hope. Let's begin with the verse Matthew cites, verse 15. The Lord is speaking through the prophet. He acknowledges that the nation is in profound mourning. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, Bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Just like Rachel, the people of Israel are at the point of despair. Their loss is great. 
Their sorrow profound. But then in verses 16 and 17, God promises them that their affliction and grief will not have the last word. Look what he says. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And then in verses 18 and 19, the Lord indicates that Israel's joy will come about as a result of their own repentance. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So ultimately, Israel was to blame for her own suffering. For generations, she had rejected the Lord. She had violated his covenant, and now she's suffering the consequences for that sin. But God is rich in mercy and grace. And in verses 20 through 30, he promises to restore Israel to the land. What's more, the Lord promises to make a new and a better covenant with his people. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see the point. Jeremiah's prophecy is not doom and gloom. It is a message of profound hope. Tears will precede the joy, yes, but joy will come in the morning. Do you see it? Matthew sees it. And Matthew wants his readers to see it. He's picked up on Jeremiah's message of hope. According to Matthew, the end of Rachel's grief portrayed by Jeremiah has come to fulfillment in the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, the weeping mothers of Bethlehem do not merely recapitulate the sorrow experienced at Ramah, but they serve as a harbinger of the messianic hope foretold by Jeremiah. Let me say it in the words of D.A. Carson, and I quote, The tears of the exile are being fulfilled. The tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. You see what Matthew's doing here? It's as if he takes a page from Jeremiah's prophecy and he uses it to wipe the tears away from the eyes of the grieving mothers in Bethlehem. It's as if he says to them, 
The Holy One of Israel doesn't merely feel compassion for you and the loss of your children, but he is roused to action, so much so that he will not spare his only beloved son on your behalf. But that raises the question, how will this Christ child remove the curse? How will he remove all sorrow and wipe away all tears? Well, Matthew's going to answer those questions in the remaining 26 chapters of his gospel. And we don't have time, obviously, to read all of those chapters. But let me take you to Matthew chapter 26, where Matthew and the other disciples are gathered in an upper room with the Lord Jesus Christ about to enjoy a Passover meal. And look what we read about in verse 27. Matthew 26, verse 27. We read these words. Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. That is to say, this cup represents my blood, my own blood which will ratify the new covenant, which is going to be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that night, Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. And the next day, the Jews and the Romans would have him crucified. In three days, he would be in the grave. And then God the Father would raise him from the dead. And once Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew and the other apostles would realize that it wasn't ultimately the Jews or the Romans that put him on the cross. It was God the Father that put him on that cross. That's how God would fully and finally deal with human sin and sorrow and suffering in this life. God's curse upon Adam in the Garden of Eden, would find its fulfillment in God's curse upon his son on the cross of Calvary. As the prophet Isaiah would describe it, the Messiah would bear our griefs. He would carry our sorrows. And the Lord would lay upon him the iniquity of us all. Earlier we sang hymn number 175, which most of us would not think of as a Christmas hymn. But hopefully after tonight, we will. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry, 
now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The last words Rachel spoke were, Son of my sorrow, Benoni. But if you know the account, you know that her son, Jacob, did not let her despair have the last word. And so he changes the child's name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And so too God the Father would not let the grave have the last word concerning the man of sorrows, but he raised him from the dead and placed him at his own right hand. Hallelujah. What a Savior. There is, as you can see, a darker side to Christmas. But that darker side is not the end of the story. According to Matthew, the tears of the mothers in Bethlehem signaled the beginning of the end. Jesus Christ is the end of sadness and grief, and he is the beginning of joy and happiness to all those who will believe. That's Matthew's Christmas story. And what Jesus began 2,000 years ago, he's going to bring to completion when he returns to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And the final book of scripture describes that coming day in words that would comfort even the bereaved mothers in Bethlehem. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Perhaps... Christmas has a darker side for someone here. You're not suffering the loss of a child in the same way the mothers of Bethlehem have, but you feel the same profound sorrow and despair. You feel empty. Perhaps it's because your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And as a result, you're without God and without hope in this world. Well, dear friends, I have good news for you today. In the words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for their sins, for they shall 
be comforted. Jesus came into the world to wipe away those tears. And so repent of your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let God turn your mourning into joy. Let him exchange your gladness, your sorrow, that is, for gladness. That, dear friends, is the Christmas story, according to Matthew. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word which is a light to our feet and a lamp to our way. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you are a God of grace and mercy who delights to give us hope in the darkest of times. And so we pray, Lord, that we would learn from this darker side of Christmas that the weeping, that the grief of the mothers in Bethlehem and the mothers in Ramah, that, Lord, it would point us to that man of sorrows who came to put an end to all of that and who took our sins on the cross, who absorbed your wrath, and who gives us hope that the day is coming when every tear will be wiped away. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you savingly, who doesn't possess that hope, may you work in that person's heart tonight and draw him or her to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.